So would you turn with me now to the book of Luke? We're going to be reading an unusual story, one that perhaps uh, you've read, and but uh, many of you perhaps never had the chance to meditate on this passage, so I'm praying that this portion of God's Word will be a blessing to the church and draw others who don't know him to himself. So would you stand with me for the reading found in Luke chapter 2 from verse 25 to 35. Luke 2, 25 to 35. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are letting your bondservant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for the revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And as a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you glory and thanks for the way you've sustained us throughout this year and at the end of this 2021, we can say that you have been our guide, our strength. You have been our helper in time of need. This has been a very unusual period. These last two years have been very draining. And I pray, O Lord, for grace for every one of your children that we would trust you in this storm. You know when the end of the storm will take place. No one would have expected that it would have lasted this long. But we place our lives in your hands. We do not want to murmur. We do not want to overspeak. We pray for wisdom. We pray for humility. We pray for trust. We pray for abundance of grace. Thank you that we can celebrate the wonderful birth of Christ and what it means and how it has changed everything. We give you glory for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated, beloved. So we have here the wonderful text that speaks about an unusual experience in the life of Mary and Joseph. Um, There's always one defining moment for every human being that is born into this world. So 
are, you look to your parents, you look to your grandparents, and they will remember one defining moment in their lives for which they uh, believe that this was the reason they came into the world. It could be because they were simply a mother or a father, because they did something unusual in in their family, whatever the case may be. For Simeon, that is exactly the case. He uh, had the privilege of holding, of cradling baby Jesus for a moment and then give a prophetic word to both Mary and Joseph. Uh, Paul tells us that every birth may be special, but Paul tells us that the birth of Christ is different. In 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, Great is the mystery of godliness. And what is this mystery? God was manifest in the flesh. That is a mystery. That the God of the universe, this great, awesome, and holy, and majestic being would enter into the womb of a teenage mom and enter into our sinful and dark world. God was manifest in the flesh. And at this very moment, when God became flesh, uh, this relatively unknown man called Simeon comes into the picture. And Luke is the only one that speaks of Simeon. Who was he? We know he was a resident of Jerusalem. Some say that he was even a priest who served in the temple. We don't know that for sure. Others speculate that he was an older man because in verse 29, it says, Now, Lord, you are letting your bond servant depart in peace. So he's speaking about his death. Some say maybe he was an older man, according to your word. But whether he was old or not, whether he was a priest or not, is not what really matters. What matters is his prophetic message. And we will consider this message after briefly looking at his life. We are told in verse 25 that he was anticipating a special moment, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And what does this expression mean? It simply means that he had the messianic hope. Now, many in uh, Judah had this hope. All Jews, devout Jews, had this hope. And... um, that Jesus, or rather the Messiah, not Jesus himself, but the Messiah would come to set them free, to deliver them from Rome and from the tyranny of Rome. But Simeon's revelation was far different. Not only did he have hope that the Messiah would come, but he was led by the Spirit, and the hand of the Holy Spirit was on his life. For we read that Verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon him. And Simeon Simeon knew him so well that by the Spirit of God, Simeon was led into the temple the very moment that Mary and Joseph walked into the temple. Now you have to remember, the temple was a very busy place. It was packed. There was only one temple, many synagogues, but only one temple. And Jews and proselytes would come from all over Um, the Roman world and they would go to the temple. So you can imagine what a hectic place this was. Thousands upon thousands of people 
coming in and going out. And here's Simeon who walks in the same moment that Mary and Joseph walk in. Why? Because the Spirit of God was upon him. How many times we think the Holy Spirit is a New Testament phenomenon. But Simeon lived under the Old Testament, under the covenant of Moses. And here we see him, a man full of the Holy Spirit, therefore full of joy, full of sweet communion. No matter what was happening around him, and a lot of bad stuff was happening in Jerusalem, he was full of joy. And that means that we too can be full of joy, even though things around us are not pleasant. And while Simeon was in communion with God and praying and worshiping God, the Holy Spirit moves him to go to the temple. For verse 26 says, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So the Lord here speaks about Yahweh. The Christ means the Messiah of Yahweh. And so in short, we have a man that was taught by the word of God, a man who lived a righteous life, a man who was led by the Spirit and eagerly expected the Messiah to come. And he was waiting for this. And in short, that's the life of a Christian. We eagerly expect the coming of the Lord. It's Maranatha. He is coming. We are walking in righteousness. God's children are. We are taught by God's word. And we seek to be filled with the Spirit of God. That's the life of a Christian in short. It's like Simeon. And while Simeon was in this state, waiting on the Lord and serving him, we find out that on the other side, and somewhere in, in uh, Bethlehem, eight days after Jesus' birth, they know that according to the law of Moses, they were to bring the firstborn, because in verse 24, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. This was a Levitical law. And to offer a sacrifice according to what he has been stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young doves. And so Mary and Joseph, eight days after Jesus was born, make their way to Jerusalem. There was no text. There was no way that jo Simeon could know of this. And so here he comes into the temple, spots the baby because the Spirit had moved him into the temple. He takes the baby from Mary. I imagine you're a mother <laughs> and you have an infant of eight days old. <laughs> you don't readily give up your baby. But Mary obviously must have trusted this man, must have seen there was something special about him. He takes the infant and it says that Simeon breaks out into this hymn of praise. For he says in verse 31, my eyes have seen your salvation. So he realizes that this is the Savior, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. Which peoples? A light for the revelation, for revelation rather, for the Gentiles. That means he's going to be a light for the non-Jews and the glory of your people, Israel. Remarkable. Simeon says this, and Joseph and Mary are caught off guard, amazed at these words that he here was the Savior. This is who he is. This is unlike any other birth. But he's, because he is the revelation for Gentiles and the glory of Israel. Notice that Christ is the king, not only of the Jews, thank God, but also of all of us who are non-Jews as well. 
His glory swallows up all other glories. We have many heroes today. Many hero, heroes throughout history. But his glory swallows up all other glories. Just like the glory of the sun swallows the glories of all the stars of heaven. There is no glory like the glory of the sun. And there is no glory like the glory of our Lord. That is why in John 1.14 we read, The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This birth was different. Now let's consider the prophecy that he shares with Mary in particular. Now Joseph is listening in, but as he says these words, he's particularly speaking to Mary. And of course, uh, Joseph is uh, part of the story. And he uses three imageries. The first one, in verse 34, is the imagery of a stone. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. Jesus as a stone. Maybe you never thought of Jesus that way. You thought of him as a baby. You thought of him as Savior and the King. Why a stone? Well, this imagery of a stone appears first in the Old Testament. In fact, we read, there are many verses like this, but here's one in Psalm 118. A stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So what we see is that this stone is rejected by the builders. Now, there is a legend, a legend rather, when Solomon's temple was being built in the quarry because no chisel or hammering was taking place on the site where the temple was being erected. So in the quarry where the stones were being shaped, there was one stone that the builders had rejected. And at the end became the chief cornerstone of the temple. And so the, the psalmist here prophesizes that the stone which Israel's princes and leaders would reject would become the chief cornerstone. And you will remember when we went through the letter of Peter, that Christ is that cornerstone. He is the one that holds the temple of God all together. Because of him, we who are believers are the living stones and part of this wonderful temple. Jesus added to the words of the psalmist, and in Luke 20 verse 18 says this, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will crush him. So in the Psalms, we understand that the stone is rejected by the builders, but yet is appointed by God as the chief cornerstone. That means Christ takes a special place in this temple. Where everyone of the leaders reject him, but God makes him, uh, gives him this special status of chief cornerstone. But in Luke, we understand that People stumble over this stone, and this stone equally crushes those that stumble, which seems like a double judgment. So he is rejected, becomes the chief cornerstone. He is a stone over which people stumble, and he is a stone that grinds and crushes those that stumble. What does that all mean? Well, we can understand Jesus being rejected because that was his life. His ministry was rejected by the Jews. He came unto his very own, but his own did not receive him. 
but to as many that received them, they became children of God. And we know that we understand why he's the chief cornerstone, because God has given him a name that is above every other name. But what does it mean that people stumble over this stone? What does it mean that the stone will crush and grind some individuals? It simply means that there are people who reject the gospel, that do not embrace the fact that they are sinners deserving of death because we, are, we, are, we, are, we have broken God's heart. We are rebellious at, at, at the very core. And they do not see Christ as Savior, but see themselves as a Savior. The other day I was listening to a famous actor. His name escapes me right now. And he was saying, after someone asked him this question, do you have any regrets? And he answered, absolutely not. I am a sinner, which I was surprised to say that. Then he goes on, I'm an old sinner. I said, wow. And then he goes, but I forgive myself, and I go on. Well, <laughs> if you sin against yourself, I can understand that. But when you sin against someone else, or you sin against the greatest being of all, forgiving yourself does very little. You need to know that you're forgiven by this holy being. That's why David said when he committed adultery, against you, against you only have I sinned. There are people who do not acknowledge themselves as sinners. And it becomes more and more apparent that what was considered sinful and what was considered wrong today is acceptable. It's in vogue. In fact, if you are living a certain lifestyle that is acceptable, you are praised. You're given a platform. You're given uh, YouTube popularity because you're the one who says, I am uh, an open, I've come out of the closet, I'm openly gay, and I've embraced my, my homosexuality, and you're praised and you're put on a certain platform. But if you encourage people to get married, and you're ridiculed. And if you tell people that, we believe in marriage, you're ridiculed. That's where the church stands. A simple thing like that. And there are many more things like that. So the gospel speaks to the fact that we are sinners, that we are rebellious at heart, and that we need to repent of our sins. And because we don't want to repent, we stumble over the stone. We stumble over the gospel. We stumble over the cross. Over and over. Uh, Paul said that to the Greeks, the cross is what? Foolishness. To the Jews, it's what? A stumbling stone, a rock of offense. The Jews were offended that the Messiah could be Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins. They were offended at that. And to the Greeks, they looked at that and goes, that makes no sense at all. That offense and that folly remain today. People still look at the cross and see it as, foolishness, and a rock of offense. And so people stumble over the cross. And so what happens afterwards? If they remain unrepentant, if they reject the gospel, and they fall over it, basically they say, look, I can't accept this, then the stone, which is Christ himself, will grind them. They will meet him as judge. That's what it means. So Jesus is a stone. By some he is believed, by others he is Rejected, some fall, some rise to new life because they've accepted him and believed him to be the Messiah and the Savior. 
But beyond being a stone, Jesus is also a sign, for it says in verse 34, as a sign to be opposed. That's remarkable. A sign to be opposed. The Greek word for sign here is miracle. So Jesus is a miracle, but he's more than a miracle worker. That's not what Simeon is saying. Indeed, he was a miracle worker, but Jesus is more than that. Um, we see that he is a miracle in his virgin birth. We see that he is a miracle in the fact that he is the God-man. In him we have the dual nature, both of man and God. We see that he is a miracle because he is the first man in heaven. He resurrected from the dead. His sinlessness is a miracle. All of these traits, these unique attributes of Christ make him the miracle. He's the sign. The Jews kept asking, we want to see a sign. We want to see a sign. He was the sign. But he was a sign that was going to be opposed, not embraced. He wasn't going to be welcomed. In the New Testament, we see Jesus facing opposition constantly. The common people heard him gladly, but the leaders tried to undermine him over and over. They could not accept the message. They could not accept him as the Messiah. Mankind rejects the message of the gospel. Those who believe in him are saved, but those who rebel against this sign, those who oppose this sign, they do so at their own peril. You say, but people don't oppose Jesus today. So many just embrace Jesus. Well, they embrace the Jesus of their making. You know, it's this, this lovable Jesus, this cute Jesus, this harmless Jesus, this Jesus that will not judge, this Jesus that embraces all. There are many pictures on Facebook of Jesus hugging people, holding people, um, you know, just being with people, holding their hand. That's the kind of Jesus that is presented. And of course, the baby Jesus, well, that's cute and welcoming. There's no sign here that opposes me. He doesn't expose my sin. He doesn't say, listen, you need to repent. There's none of that in baby Jesus. And so they're comfortable with baby Jesus. We all are until the Lord exposes the rebellion of our hearts and we see him as the miracle that we need. And then we humble ourselves because the grown-up Jesus, people run away from him. He's scary. He's the one who comes to judge. He's not the one who comes to make us feel comfortable and deceive us into making us feel that it's okay the way we're living. He calls us to repentance because he truly loves us and he will not let his people walk in self-deception. Imagine Mary listening to these words. He is a stone that will cause people to fall. He is a sign to be opposed. She's saying to himself, what is this? Here she had this wonderful birth of one of a king. He's the Messiah. He is the salvation. And now he is a stone. He is a sign to be opposed. That must have saddened her. It must have shocked her. It must have left her wondering. It was a bitter, sweet moment in that very moment. But he wasn't finished. He went on. The third image comes in verse 35 when he says to Mary now specifically, and a sword will pierce your soul. 
a stone that causes people to fall, a sign that will be opposed, and a sword. When she was accused of having Jesus out of wedlock, that was the sword of shame that pierced her. We see Mary saying nothing. When Joseph was about to abandon her, she doesn't defend herself. She accepts her fate. She goes, if this is what God wants and I will lose my betrothed, so be it. And that was another painful sword that pierced her heart. Thankfully, the angel appeared and changed Joseph's mind. When Herod slew all the infants of Bethlehem in search of baby Jesus, then the sword of blame pierced her heart because after all, Herod was after Jesus. And you can imagine while they were in Egypt, Joseph and Mary, she said, all those infants that have died because of me, because of this child. How did she feel? When rumors spread that Jesus was demon-possessed and out of his mind, because that's what the leaders were circulating, the sword of anxiety and a fear pierced her soul, and she goes out to try to rescue her son and say, come home, let them be. They can't appreciate you. They can't understand you. And Jesus said, who is my mother, my brother, my sister, those who hear the, my, the word and do his will? When Jesus is bloodied and unrecognizable and gasping for air on the cross, helpless she was watching her beloved firstborn, unrecognizable and just covered with blood, gasping for air as much as he could while slowly he was dying, a horrible death, and the sword of sorrow pierced Mary's heart. You see, a sword was going to pierce her heart. She must remember those words every single time throughout her life until the very end. See, after knowing she would carry the Messiah in her womb, Mary later on goes to see her cousin Elizabeth and she breaks out into a song because Mary Elizabeth was expecting John the Baptist. But little did she know that with the blessing would come a heavy burden. With the honor, there would be horror, a sorrow. The sword of sorrow would pierce her heart over and over. Right in the middle of God's will. I've often thought about that. She wasn't disobeying God, and yet the Lord prepared sorrow upon sorrow for her. You could be right in the middle of God's will and you could have sorrow. There could be a storm in your life. <clears throat> and I believe that's what the church is going through right now. It's going through a storm in the middle, while we are in the middle of God's will. Many times you've heard this expression that the world is better off because Jesus came. That's not necessarily true. For those who stumble over Jesus, it's not better off. For those who oppose him, it's not better off. For those who reject the cross, it's not better off. It's not. Because they choose their sins and they delight in their darkness more than in the light, it is not better off. 
The Bible says that when Jesus returns, he will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. Have you ever expressed, paid attention to that? He will take vengeance on them who do not know God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are very heavy words. Who shall be punished, notice, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. When he came the first time, he came incognito. He came without being recognized, without making too much of a fuss. Only the few shepherds and Mary and Joseph, and here we have Simeon. Later on, we have Hannah. Only a few individuals were made aware of this spectacular birth. When he comes a second time, he comes taking vengeance on them that know not God. What a frightening expression. This should make people think. This should make every one of us think. Am I warning others? Am I telling them that he's going to come back in this way? In the end, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. But the ones that bow now before the Lord, the ones that confess his name now and acknowledge their sin, they are part of the house of God. They know him as father. They love him. And they are loved by God. So when you think of Christ, is he someone that you stumble over? Is he someone that you oppose? Is the message of the cross repugnant to you? Do you acknowledge that you are a sinner deserving of judgment? Or do you think you're a good person? Anthony Hopkins, that's the actor. You feel like Anthony Hopkins, that yeah, you're a sinner, but you forgive yourself every day and you just move on. There's only one way to rise. It is by, by acknowledging that we are sinners. And that he came for sinners. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. So that we could become children of God and walk with him. Repent of your sins if you're here today and you haven't done that. Repent. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. That you deserve this punishment that he absorbed for sinners. Repent and acknowledge yourself as a sinner. Acknowledge him as your savior and you will rise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a unique ministry our Lord had. What a unique life. How strange that the mystery of godliness should be made known only to a few at the beginning. This was your doing. But thank be to God for the church that was given birth by the Holy Spirit and the church makes known this message over and over. And we know of many who reject the gospel. We know of people who do not repent, who choose to reject what the gospel says, reject the will of God. And we pray for them. We plead for them. Lord, we find ourselves in an unusual time, but this, what we're going through, is nothing compared to what awaits those who reject the gospel. And so I pray that we would keep focused on what is important and that we would not be overwhelmed with our situation, our circumstance, 
but that the word of God would find not only a place in our hearts, but a place on our lips so we can share this message with those we meet, that we would love them as you loved us and came into this world to save us. Father, thank you for giving us such an enormous, such a gargantuan gift, giving us your son, the Savior. Thank you. And we want to live for you. We need your grace to do so. And we ask this in the precious and glorious name of our Lord. Amen.